Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are diving straight into the book of Romans, chapter by chapter. We are at chapter six this week, and we're focusing in on Paul's understanding of how we are to live now in response to all of our uh, lives now being summed up in Christ Jesus. This is the most part- um, participation chapter in the book of Romans. We will be participating with Jesus in the actions of his life all the way to the cross and into resurrection. And Paul is going to take our participation in his life story as a way for us to live in our lives today. Come along for the ride. So, um, from the beginning of this episode, like I said, we'll always do kind of a recap, but um, with the last two episodes being a little longer, I think I'll make this a shorter recap um, and just refer you back to these episodes. We've been working through... um, Uh, Romans chapter by chapter, and um, chapters one through four are very much their own kind of contained unit, um, which focus specifically on justification and how um, we as a people, both as Gentiles and um, as the Jewish people, um, are justified under the actions of Christ Jesus um, and how that unifies both a Jew and a Gentile together. Chapters five through eight then focus then on how that outworks into our own living and the living of Jews and Gentiles, both in the Roman community and uh, exactly how we are living today, um, 2,000 years later. Um, In chapter 5, we really focused in on how Paul specifically sees um, the beginnings of our living now, boasting in a completely different way of living than the Jews might have boasted. Um, We are now boasting in suffering as opposed to boasting in the law. Um, He then focuses in on how Adam and his entire life story was the ushering in of sin and how Jesus and his entire life story is the ushering in of this new life that we have um, in which we are able to follow after after Jesus with all of our hearts. That's pretty much the simple summary for everything we've been going through. I know it's been a lot longer um, than that short summary, and there's been a lot of interesting conversations I'm sure that you've been having as we've been getting through these chapters. Um, but that's the long and short of it is, again, he's just focusing in on how to sum up both a Gentile and a Jewish community together, and he f- is repeatedly finding um, new categories to which both a Jew and a Gentile can be summed up under underneath. Um, And this week is going to be no different than that. We are going to focus in on baptism, on water. Um, We're going to focus in on um, Jesus's death and resurrection as the unifying principles to both a Jew and a Gentile, and how um, we are called to live that same life that Jesus um, lived. And so Jesus's um, life was called a gift in chapter five. Um, You could say that chapter six is now calling Jesus's life and ministry 
a way. Um, This is the way of Jesus that's going to be communicated in this chapter. As a result, um, a lot of this chapter is going to be focused on um, how we participate in Jesus's ministry, how um, we are to follow after him and be little Christ versions of the Messiah. Um, Remember, we talked about how Christ just means Messiah last week. And so we're supposed to be little messiahs, little anointed ones that go out into the world and live the same way that Jesus lived. Um, A couple of things that might be helpful to kind of clarify at the very beginning. Paul is going to begin to use the word death in a few new ways throughout the rest of this section. Death in chapter 5 just meant physical death. Um, It had a sense in which um, when Adam sinned, he brought death into the world, and people were physically dying all the way from Adam all the way to the time of Moses and even beyond, um, even after the law. And the idea here in chapter 6 is that um, the death of Jesus um, brings about a new kind of understanding of death, in which death now still is, um, in some sense, a uh, physical kind of death, um, I don't think we're trying to get away from that that sense because Jesus physically died, um, and that is a thing that happens. But he's going to take that physical death of Jesus, and he's going to map it on to baptism, of all things. Um, And how we are baptized um, is a representation or a symbol of that death that Jesus underwent. And so what's going to happen is death is going to have a bit more nuance to it now. Um, It's going to have a bit of a metaphor um, to how, as Christians, we Um, live and how we must now, um, there's a phrase that's often used in Christian circles that um, uh, best encapsulates this, how we must die to ourselves, to our flesh even. Um, And this idea isn't that like we're um, actually like physically dying, but there is a sense in which there is a part of ourselves in which Paul really sees as having been crucified with Christ Jesus, that we're putting some part of ourselves on the cross, um, and that that part um, will um, no longer be alive, um, and that the new part of us that is um, given by the Holy Spirit is a, a almost a down payment of sorts of the resurrection that Jesus experiences after he dies. Um, That's going to be really helpful for kind of setting up this entire chapter, um, as he really sees in our life, in our current current mindset, if you are a Christian, you have in some sense crucified your old self, and in some sense you have invited the Holy Spirit within you, which has given you a new life, has given you a mini resurrection in your life that's created the fruits of the Spirit, is what he'll say in Galatians 6, and that that has uh, mapped on to the story of Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, That's a very important um, thing to talk about as we get into this chapter, because his basic thesis for this entire chapter is that having that in mind, there should be no returning to sin as a result of those actions happening in your life. Um, If you have crucified your old self, it makes no sense in the world to start sinning again, because that would be going back to the very thing that you killed on the cross. Um, That'd be going back into death, is what he'll say throughout this chapter. Um, And as a result, um, for him, that just doesn't make sense on a logical level, and to Two, um, it's inviting um, the old 
way of doing things back into your life, and he will say that that ends in death. Um, Something that might be a little controversial, depending on your um, upbringing and whether or not you believe that um, once you become a Christian, there's no way that you um, can lose your salvation after becoming a Christian. We've already talked about how justification and salvation are not synonyms. Justification just means being put in right relationship with God. It doesn't mean that you were saved like everybody um, may tell you. Um, Salvation is something that's still to come. We talked about that in Romans 5, um, how um, while we've been justified, we're still awaiting being saved um, from the final judgment that will come eventually. Um, That's a distinction that Paul makes throughout the book of Romans. Um, And we'll... um, Definitely see a little bit of that here in this chapter as um, Paul is really honing in on what it means to die to yourself. So in many ways, this chapter um, is going to be a continuation of everything that came before it, but it's also putting some new ground as far as the concept of death goes. And I want you to remember that... um, In our last chapter, we focused specifically on two different figures. We focused in on Adam and Christ, and we focused in on how the way of Adam is what leads to death. And so if we go back to our old flesh, um, we're going back to the old Adam. Um, And if we continue in Christ, um, then we will be saved in the final judgment. This is something that he'll pick up again in Romans 7, um, where he again begins to speak uh, from the perspective of Adam, and then again speaks from the perspective of being in Christ in chapter 8. So this is definitely going to have... Kind of in some uh, way, uh, Romans 5 is kind of the ground map for the next three chapters. This is a um, Jesus chapter. Uh, Romans 7 will be an Adam chapter. And then Romans 8 will be another Jesus chapter. So um, maybe that helps as an outline for as we're going forward. But always remember, too, there is the Israelite story that's also underneath this. Um, Israel um is now at the Reed Sea. This is the baptism chapter, meaning that we go through the waters of baptism and we come out of the waters in the same way that the Israelites went through the waters of the Reed Sea and came out on dry land. And as a result, um, they died to their old lives in Egypt. And they are now entering into the wilderness um, where they will enter to the mountain of Sinai eventually in chapter 7. And so Paul is definitely using um, all of these Exodus imagery in this chapter to really bring forward the idea that both a Jew's story and our story as Gentiles um, really are in many ways working towards the same endpoint. And grace is throughout the entirety of it, Um, from grace to grace, as he says in chapter 1. So with all that being said, and all that is a quick summary, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so from the very beginning of this chapter, um, we see that he again um, asks a rhetorical question. What then shall we say? Um, this is something that he did back in chapter 3, so we shouldn't be um, uh, surprised that he is doing this once again. Paul loves to ask rhetorical questions like this. Um, and again, this is actually something very similar to chapter 3, in which he anticipates someone having objections to everything that he said in chapters 4 and 5. Um, this is something that he's very much aware of because he knows that Jews in particular are, are accusing him, as he mentions in chapter 3, of saying that um, people can sin all day long and it's all good and well. Like they can completely disobey Torah and it's all good and well because Jesus died on the cross and he forgave all sin. Um, and Paul is very, very adamant that um, that Jewish ac accusation against him is not correct. He is not saying that, and so he is really focusing in on how um, that accusation brought up in chapter 3, um, one, is just illogical from the very beginning, and two, um, is just something that he finds uh, is um, not uh, not something that he believes. Um, so he is going to clarify and bring out how he actually thinks people should live in response to both being made in the right relationship with God and also being um, in 
uh, a receiver of this gift of grace in which we're now reigning in um, the throne that was once um, occupied by death, like he said in chapter 5. So he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Remember at the very end, he talked about how um, when the law came in, um, grace actually did increase. Um, This is something that I bring up time and time again. This is in verse 20 of chapter 5. When the law was brought in, that was in the Old Testament. (laughs) Um, And because it was brought in the Old Testament, um, that very ending line of verse 20, grace increased all the more, means that there was grace in the Old Testament. That's something I harp on time and time again. Um, If you have this kind of dichotomy where there was no grace until the New Testament, um, read verse 20 of chapter 5 because um, it says when the law was brought in, trespasses um, increased. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And this is what goes back to what I was saying in Romans chapter 1, how there was um, faith that we could have in God giving us grace in the Old Testament. That is the faith that Abraham had, actually. That's something that Hebrews will bring up. Um, And that um, we're really just... um, Uh, interacting with that once again in the New Testament, which is why he thinks that a Jew and a Gentile can get along with one another and they can all be unified under this um, grace because it's not a new thing that's completely antithetical to Torah. Um, It is something that is in the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Jews can get along with it. It is part of their law code. Um, So he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No. Um, by no means. <laughs> he doesn't want people to just continue sinning so that um, grace is just abounding all the more. Um, that's just abusing the system. And his reason for that, interestingly here, is we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Um, like I said in the intro to this chapter, um, this is where we're going to start to see how death in our lives has become a thing because we have accepted the gift of Jesus's death and resurrection in our lives. Um, we'll talk about that a lot more as he kind of gets through it. And he says, how can we live in it any longer, right? So if you've died to something, how can then you go back to the thing you've died to, right? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All right, let's pause here. Baptism is something that um, a lot of people in some Christian circles debate um, because some people believe that baptism is actually what brings about um, salvation, and some people don't believe that it brings about salvation. Um, I am actually a part of a community that, um, historically at least, um, and in most of their uh, churches, strongly believes that baptism um, saves you. Um, and uh, they pull that from some of these verses, although First Peter is generally the verse that um, they uh, uh, pick uh, pick up the most. Um, I'm not really going to touch on the issue of baptism. I find that this is not really what Paul is getting at here. Um, he's not using baptism here um, to say that it saves you. Um, he is using it um, in as a um, symbol of uh, for us, however, and I do want to talk about that. So we won't necessarily talk about the theological implications of baptism and all of that. Um, I will leave you to go and do your own research on that. Um, historically, two Catholics also believe this. This is the only thing I've found about the uh, denomination that I'm a part of that seems to agree with Catholicism, uh, which is a really interesting uh, alignment that I never thought that um, 
the dom- the denomination I am a part of, which is very Protestant, um, would ever uh, have anything in common with Catholicism. But um, it is interesting that this denomination in particular um, has some uh, common ground there um, with Catholics. But regarding all of that, like I said, go and do your own research on how baptism works in the whole salvation kind of story. I would ask you as you're doing your research to really distinguish between salvation and justification. That's the one thing that I've been harping on throughout this entire um, uh, book as we've been going through it is justification means being put in right relationship with God. That does not mean that we are acquitted in the final judgment. The final judgment is yet to come, and there are still things we can do um, in this current time that have bearing on that final judgment. So keep that in mind. But we are in right standing with him. um, And there is now an advocate up in the heavens that is uh, offering sacrifices on our behalf, as Hebrews says. So do keep that in mind as well. Um, It's just part of the story. It's not the whole of the story. Um, So as we continue to go through this, that'll make a little bit more sense. But um, when you're doing your own research on baptism and how justification works into salvation, um, think about that at least, um, especially if you're going to go through um, 1 Peter. Anyway, so uh, for here, Baptism um, in this context and in this time period often um, was used as a symbol of repentance. Um, This goes back to the idea of water being a cleansing for people in their time period. Um, They would have um, a lot of purification rituals that involved water washing of their hands in many senses. There is also some stories in the Old Testament of Naaman, for instance, washing himself seven times in the Jordan River, um, and that cleansing him from um, leprosy, actually. And uh, John, famously, John the Baptist, Uh, actually calls the people in his time period to a baptism of repentance in which they um, repent of their sins by being washed in the water. And it's that washing in the water that washes them clean of all their sins. Here, what um, uh, Paul does is pull on a more archaic, older um, metaphor for water, in which water, um, in the Old Testament at least, um, represented uh, death and represented chaos and disorder. Um, Many psalms will use this image of water being this force of nature that you can't predict, and um, it will, in many cases, overwhelm and um, get to the point that you are drowning under the waves of water and snuff out your life, um, snuff out the flame of your spirit even. Um, And so he picks up on this imagery of water being something that can be very deadly um, if it overwhelms you. Um, And he says that baptism is now um, us going through the waters of death, in a sense, um, and being baptized into Christ Jesus, where um, it is really the... um, I guess I would call it a good analogy that was once given to me, is um, it's basically a ceremony of sorts... like a graduation ceremony in which, um, uh, like in a graduation ceremony, you, uh, graduate, um, way before you actually receive the little piece of, um, uh, paper that says you are graduated. Um, you actually graduate when you, um, uh, go through the whole process of, uh, um, finishing up all your classes and getting everything submitted and getting all of the classes finalized and your grades are finally in. That's when you've officially graduated. But the ceremony in many ways is, um, 
essentially uh, allowing you to participate in a series of rituals that basically enact that graduation on you. And in the same way, baptism operates that same way, where you're baptized into Christ Jesus, meaning that baptism is a ceremony in which um, you are, in many ways, living the life of Jesus, and you're in Christ Jesus. Um, this is the language of participation, where you're in him, right? Um, this case, um, or do you not know that you were baptized into Christ Jesus, right? Um, so there's this very personal kind of um overlapping of both us and Jesus and the life of Jesus is also like and by life I just mean the way that he lived the way that Jesus lived is the way that we live right and baptism is the kind of ushering in of that overlapping of our lives but he's also taking the metaphor of the waters signifying death and he's showing that when we go under the waters we are dying in a sense even as Jesus died on the cross um, those two ideas um, being um, brought into the way of Jesus and being um, brought into death, which is a big part of the way of Jesus, those two ideas is what he's communicating in verse 3. Verse 4, he then says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Again, just kind of reiterating what he was saying in verse 3. Um, though this time, it's interesting, he's uh, focusing in on burial um, and how we're actually like put into a grave now um, with this baptism, even as Jesus was put into a burial on after he was crucified. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live in a new life. So again, like I was saying, um, baptism is what puts us in the grave, and then we come out on the other side of that baptism, and um, just as Jesus was raised from the dead after he was put in the grave, um, he focuses in again on the glory of the Father, which is what raises Jesus from the dead. Um, Jesus never raises himself in scripture. It's either the Holy Spirit or the Father um, that is the uh, originator of that resurrection. That's something to keep in mind, at least for Trinitarian reasons. Um, but as a result of that, um, we too may live a new life. So the Holy Spirit or the Father is going to, because of their glory, they're also going to give us new life. And this isn't just like life after death, which it, that's definitely part of it, but this is also a life in which we're now living um, from the fruits of the Spirit, living a life in which we are um, uh, not following the old ways in which we used to be living, but instead um, living in a way that um, is kind, gentle, patient, loving, peaceful, um, all of those attributes that we attribute to Christians, right? In verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, he's still kind of focusing in on unification here. And again, remember, everything that Paul is doing here, I, I know you've heard me say this like a billion times at this point, but I just it has to be reiterated over and over. Otherwise, you'll just think Paul is doing theology for the sake of theology, and that's not his point. Um he is trying to give examples of unification, right? Um, Adam was a unifying figure for us in the old life. Jesus is a unifying figure for us in the new life. Now he's saying baptism is a unifying action for all of us, both the Jew and the Gentile, right? Um, and the ba that baptism represents a death that both a Jew and a Gentile must undergo in which we die to our old self, both Jews and Gentiles. And the implication here, right, is that a Gentile just can't get away with anything, right? You know, like they can't just like accept the grace of Jesus and then like 
still live their old way. Um, they have to live as if they've died to their old self, right? They have to die to their Romans 1 self. Um, that's a part of this whole story. Um, and if they are still living like a Romans 1 person, then, well, look at Romans 2. <laughs> um, look at how that ends up. Um, and that's that's something that is throughout the entirety of the book because he is worried that some of the Jews might have a point. Maybe some Gentiles in this community are living in a way that is not good. And so he's not just trying to draw a line in the sand and say, um, all you Jews are being super critical of Gentiles, and so I just need to set you Jews straight. Um, there might be some cases in this community in which some Gentiles have some First Corinthians kind of moments, you know? Um, we don't hear of any kind of things of the nature like in First Corinthians where someone's sleeping with their stepmother, for instance, but I would wager a guess in Rome, which was one of the most promiscuous cities in that context, that you were having some Christians that were being led astray by some of the culture that was around them. And so this is a very important point, is it's not just that the Jews are being super critical because they have the law, and as a result of them having the law, they've got to get down from their high horses and just accept that Gentiles can live the way they want to live. No, Gentiles also have to shape it up too. They've got to do what they've got to, like they've got to act like they've died to Christ. And that's a big important point. But remember, this isn't just about Gentiles dying to self. This is also about Jews dying to self. And what a Jew dying to self would look like being buried in baptism is dying to the law. That's something that'll come up in chapter seven, actually. Um, and so it's really important to point out that this um, death of baptism um, is something that unifies both a Jew and a Gentile. It's something they both have to go through. And that's why he's bringing this up in the first point. It's a unifying principle to both of their life stories. Um, and who is the ultimate unifier of both of their stories? The life of Jesus, like the way that he lived. If they both both groups of people live the way Jesus lived, um, they will be unified and be in community with one another. That's his point. This is why if they don't live that way, if they're if they have inviting among them and things of that nature, then they're not living the way of Jesus. That's his big point, which is um, anti-gospel, as he'll say in Galatians 2. Anyway, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we certainly also... Um, will be united with him in a resurrection like his. So notice there's kind of a resurrection that'll come in the future where our bodies resurrect, and then there's a resurrection that um, is happening in our lives in the current moment. There's two resurrections. There's a resurrection of a new life in which we're living um, by the Spirit, is what he'll say in chapter 8, a life in which we're putting off the old self. Um, and it, notice again that this resurrection is from the glory of the Father, right? Like this is something that comes from this weight and significance of the Father. It's a gift from the Father. It's not something you can manifest on your own, as he'll get to in chapter 8. This is something that um, the Spirit is constantly putting into your life day by day and slowly um, chipping away at your old self um, as you're attempting to die to it every day of your life. That's the story that Paul's laying out here. In the same way that um, Jesus went through a death and a resurrection, we go through an, a death of ourselves and a resurrection of ourselves every day of our life. Um, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Okay, let's stop there. So, old self was crucified 
with Jesus, right? Um, this is interesting because he switched metaphors here a little bit. Uh, up here at the top, he says it was buried. Now he's going back to the original metaphor, which was um, in verse 3, that it's also killed. Um, that old self is killed. And again, I just want you to really see this. Um, he's using all of this language and metaphor here, not to be kind of really hard to understand, but he's using it because he's hoping to unify both a Jew and a Gentile under the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is both the story of the Jewish uh, Jews and the story of the Gentiles, and they both can be unified under that story. So their old self is crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. This is one of my um, uh, like favorite um verses in many ways because it shows that um, it's not a body that is um, infested with sin, which is what I think many people want to say. Um, in fact, body ruled by sin is even a little, um, uh, the NIV is kind of uh, implying a few things with the word ruled here. Um, but uh, the uh, like straight just translation is the body of sin, like the entity of sin might be done away with. Um, and uh, so the NIV is kind of making a translation translation choice here and saying that the body is our body that's being ruled by sin. Um, let me actually just kind of show you what I mean, pull up the New American Standard here so that you guys kind of get an idea. And the New American Standard is actually a word-for-word translation, so you can kind of, kind of see the difference um, between those so you know I'm not just making this up. Um, so this is in verse 6, so we'll go to verse 6 here. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So it uses the word our body of sin um, might be done away with. And uh, let's actually go to the um, Greek here on this one. And we'll see that uh, there is, I'm very curious here, because even our, I would say, is... Um, not something that I would actually translate this as, because um, I'm not even sure that our there is um, right to do. Let's actually go to the ESV here and see what they do. In the ESV, they say, um, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I think the, the ESV has it right here. Um, uh, which is one, one of the few times that the ESV uh, is uh, one that I say gets it right. Um, that's more correct in the Greek, actually, to say the body of sin instead of the New American Standard, which says our body of sin. Um, the idea being that um, there's kind of a debate about this phrase. Um, it either refers to um, our physical body and it being invaded or infected or ruled by sin, um, or it means a body of sin that is outside of humans that is the overruling power of man, right? And uh, I would say that it's far more likely that it's the second, that it is this overarching power. Um, this actually melds a lot better with chapter 3 and chapter 5, which says that um, there's a verse in particular that talks about the power of sin, um, and that power of sin is... Um, what is destroyed um, by Jesus. Um, 
This passage is specifically in um, chapter 3 and in verse 9, where it says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And uh, then we'll talk about, uh, you've already kind of gone through chapter 5 and how um, the sin was being, uh, sin, actually it's death, but it's death through sin was reigning, and now we are reigning, right? And so there is this kind of, uh, like, working through of both of those chapters of how Jesus is the one that dethrones death and sin from their rightful place. You also see that in Revelation, that's also talked about sin and death are actually two of the characters that are thrown into the lake of fire at the very end of Revelation. So all of this kind of maps on to this idea of sin having its own personality of sorts, its own entity and its own body um, that is ruling in all of the lives of people, right? And this is, I think, a more accurate. I was actually even checking the Greek on this to see why the New American Standard Version went with our body. Um, And that word is not in the Greek. Um, And the New American Standard is claiming to be a word-for-word translation. And that word our is, I looked all through that verse and there's no our there. Um, Sometimes um, there is a direct article there, which is the, um, and the body of sin um, is the translation that the ESV goes for. Sometimes I think that um, the, in some cases, um, if you're translating it like, um, uh, this gets really nerdy into Greek, but sometimes there are certain situations where um, you could potentially translate that as our, but it's a big stretch in that passage, and I'm not seeing enough justification for them translating it. Again, I've only taken about a a semester and a half of Greek, so um, there might be some Greek scholars out there that know a little bit better for me on why um, the ESV um, parts ways with the New American Standard on that. Um, Both of them are word-for-word translations, so um, it does seem a little interesting to me that one would go one way and one would go another when both of them claim to be very precise in their translations. Um, But again, I would say that um, I've heard um, academic scholars argue that body of the sin, uh, the body of sin, not our body of sin, is the more correct way to think about this. Um, so just keep that in mind as we're going through. Um, and like I said, <laughs> the NIV is the most wrong on this by saying so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That kind of implies that um, uh, there is a ruling, and the word rule um, uh, definitely is uh, being kind of pulled here in a phrase that I don't think should be there. Um, It's the body of sin is the way that the Greek um, translation works. It's in the genitive case, so you need to at least say the body of sin um, instead of the body ruled by sin. Again, that's all nerdy Greek stuff that you may or may not care about, but it is really important for this interpretation of this verse here. Um, So he says, yeah, um, this body of sin might be done away with. Um, Like I said, I'm translating that more as this entity or power of sin can be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to that entity, that that power that's in the universe, um, which is sin. Um, Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And this is something that he's going to parallel with the law in chapter 7. When someone dies, they're free from sin in chapter 6. When someone dies, they're free from the law. And he will actually map it on in chapter 7 to the idea of a will and how uh, when you... uh, 
uh, actually, the first thing he'll do, uh, map it onto is actually something in the Torah, in the law, that says when a woman a woman has her husband die, she's free to marry again if she wants to. Um, that death has, um, in many, in a way, um, uh, fulfilled the covenant that she made with um, that partner, and as a result, um, she can marry another time. And so, as like uh, when we think about this overall, like this idea is that death, in many ways, um, finalizes and completes covenants. Um, and so, in this case, death also um, finalizes and completes the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden when He said, "If you eat of this, you shall surely die." Um, and that whole death now has been finalized because you've died, and so there's no more. Um, worry of the power of death being in our lives because we've died, right? We've died to that old sin in our lives. And so sin can't have mastery and power over us. But his point is that's only happened in a very mini version and that will happen in the future in a very grand version when we're all resurrected in our new bodies. Um, Right now we are in many ways um, living that story out, but that story hasn't been finalized yet. Um, and as a result, we still have to choose to die to that old self every day of our life and crucify that old self every day of our life. That's his big point. Um, and he says in verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin, like I said. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with them. Again, par for the course because Jesus died and then was resurrected. So I think here he's talking both about resurrection in the here and now, and by that I mean getting new life and getting the fruits of the Spirit, and then also the resurrection that will come when we're actually physically resurrected. For we know that since Christ was resurrected from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So he's really just reiterating everything I said before. Um, he's just really showing how when Jesus died, he died specifically to sin. And so now he has life um, that has now been resurrected in him. And that life he lives to God. Um, it is to God that that life is given, right? Um, the death is given to sin to satisfy sin. And the life is given to God Um to now be in right relationship with God, which is just a beautiful idea, right? Sin is now satisfied because we've died to it, right? We've finalized that command in the Garden of Eden in which um, God said, if you do this, you shall die. This is actually, I think, where um, uh, in some cases uh, there is a little bit of um, Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia kind of coming in here, this idea of... Um, um, I think in many cases he intended the witch in um, the Chronicles of Narnia um, uh, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to kind of indicate the power of sin um, over people. And the witch has a very interesting story in which she demands the death of Edmund um, uh, because he sinned. Um, And uh, because he's a sinner, um, the witch um, claims him as she is the Lord or power over all sinners. She's the owner of all um, sinners, and she gets to um, uh, do whatever she wants with him. And Aslan then, um, the Jesus figure in the story, um, dies in his place so that she is satisfied. So he actually 
goes along with her way of thinking about things. And he dies to her um, like edict, basically, to how the system was set up by, um, in this case, by God. Um, the emperor over the sea is how it's called in Narnia. But this is essentially that ex- very same story being mapped on here um, and being... Um, uh, seen through that lens, right? Um, uh, this is uh, very important even um, for uh, just in general how we view um, Jesus's death and how it affects sin and death, right? It's been satisfied um, just as much as um, uh, we may talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. Um, here, the focus is less on the wrath of God being satisfied, which again, remember, I talked about how the wrath of God um is something that still hasn't come yet. <laughs> That's something in the future. Um, the um, uh, right now, what we're dealing with is sin and death, um, which was the outworking of what God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Um, and yeah, um, that's something that's been satisfied through Jesus dying to sin, and now Jesus lives to God. In the same way, verse eleven: Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't think I need to explain. We've already kind of covered exactly what that means. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is a really important point. This implies that sin can reign in your mortal body if you are um, still uh, a believer, right? And he's telling them, don't let it do that. Don't let it um, reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, right? So don't let it regain the power that um, Christ was able to completely destroy in it on the cross and when he resurrected. Now you are at a choice, and you can either choose to let that sin reclaim your life and have that power over you by your own free will choice, or you can um, decide not to allow that to happen and follow instead after Jesus and live the life of dying every day to that sin. That's the choice that's before you, and that's what he's going to set up here. Um, That's a very important thing for Gentiles and Jews to realize that this is not just something that's a one and done, and now you can do whatever you want. You have to die to to that old self and die to sin every day. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Notice again how all of this language is not sin inside of you, but it's sin as an entity outside of you that you're offering to it and allowing it to have control over your life. Sin is a third party character in this story. You have Jesus, you have us, and you have sin. All of these three are um, characters, and he's saying you can choose between sin and its power, and you can choose between Christ and his power. Do not offer any part of yourself as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So think of yourself as someone that's resurrected, even though it hasn't happened yet. Think of yourself as having resurrected from the death to your old self and into this new life in Jesus. And don't offer any part of this of yourself to God sin now. Don't don't even try. And offer every part of yourself to him, meaning Jesus, as an instrument of righteousness, right? So there's, again, like I said, a choice. You can either offer yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness and continue to do wickedness even though you have been justified, or you can um, offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness to Jesus um, and 
deepen that relationship with him, and in that case, you will escape the wrath that is to come. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace, right? Um, and this idea being, like, remember, there is some theology here. You're, un, you're no longer under um, this law of Torah that is making everything super difficult, Um you're under grace now, and I want you to—I want to make it very clear here. The reason they're not under the law um, is not because it's been nullified. Because remember, back in chapter three, the law hasn't been null—the uh, law hasn't been nullified. Um, he says that at the very end of chapter uh, three or two. I think it's um, three. Uh, yes, yes. Chapter uh, at the end of three. Do we then nullify the law by the by this faith? Not at all. We uphold the law. That is the very last line of chapter three. So when we're reading this, and we read, "You are not under the law." Um, he's not saying that we abolish the law, right? He's saying that um, the law has no longer any credence in our life anymore because it's been satisfied by Jesus. And uh, the commandment, don't eat of the knowledge of good and evil, has been satisfied by Jesus's um, erasing of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. He's died to that sin and had that death pronouncement come upon himself. And as a result, um, the law no longer is a factor in this whole story. The law just increased the sin that was going on. It uh, accused even more because it was more commands that we were breaking. Um, but now we're no longer ruled by that law that's accusing us even more. Remember, he talks about that in John, how Moses is our accuser um, because we're breaking all the laws. And he's saying, now you're no longer under that accuser, but you're under the grace that's come from Jesus. Um, That's not to say that the law didn't have grace. This is just kind of laying out how the law um, was an accuser because the Jewish people were not following through and they needed to access a different part of their law, the part of the faith of Abraham, to then believe in Jesus Christ and have the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. Hopefully that makes everything make sense there. Verse 15, what then? Shall we become, uh, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Again, he's pointing out the fact that he's expecting people to have a little bit of like, uh, oh, you actually are saying that we can do whatever we want to because you say we're no longer under under the law. Um, And that's that's something that um, he anticipates. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here he's going to use a human example is what he's going to say later on, like a a human analogy. And he's going to use the analogy of slavery here. And what he says is that um, when you obey any person, that is, in a sense, um, in this case, when you obey sin, you are actually becoming a slave to sin. Um, And in this sense, I actually think that there is like a quality here that he's getting at with how both the power of Jesus and the power of sin both have qualities to them in which the more you do them, thinking back to Romans 1 here, the more you do them, the deeper into them you get. So the more you um, give yourself to Jesus, the more holy you get. Um, the more the Spirit begins to um, work in your life and produce more fruit. The more you do sin and do wickedness, the more evil you become and the more... Um, 
uh, the uh, things in your life go and spiral downwards, right? You can either spiral upwards or you can spiral downwards. That's your choice here. Um, this is something Lewis famously said because um, if he believed that all humans were in this um, lifelong either growing closer to God or growing farther away from God, and in this case I would say add growing closer to sin and growing further into sin, and he believed that humans were immortal. And as a result, if you think about infant infinity and give the give humans infinite time, the people that um, maybe even are making very small decisions towards a way of sin, if you give them an infinite amount of time to continue to make choices of sin, they will eventually end up to be the worst horrific people of uh, you can imagine because they have infinity time to continue to get deeper and deeper into sin. And in this case, you could map on the idea of slavery there as they're becoming more and more enslaved to the actions they're doing. This is why we talk about um, uh, this topic of like it being a slow fade in which um, you make small decisions of sin that eventually lead to even uh, more medium decisions of sin that eventually lead to really great decisions of sin. And you have to really watch yourself every day that the small ones don't um, lead you down a path. And this is the important point. He's setting up this as a path difference, not as a momentary time when you just randomly mess up, right? This is These are two paths of sin, uh, two paths that we could go down. We can either go down the path of sin, and which leads to death, is what he'll say by the very end of this chapter, or we can go down the path of Jesus, which leads to righteousness, being in right relationship with God by the very end, and thus salvation with God, right? Um, so, that's where we're all headed, and he's using slavery as the analogy here. Um, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, like you said, that path, the slavery to sin, leads to death. And again, I want you to remember, he's saying this to people that are Christians, um, and he's saying that if you become a slave to sin after you've been justified, like you will still end in death here. Or to obedience, which leads to righteousness or right relationship with God, right? Um, this is a really interesting point because he's saying that there is a right relationship with God that happens um, from Jesus that um, makes us justified, but there's also obedience, which also leads to right relationship with God at the very end when he has the judgment. I think this is a good um, verse to kind of argue um, what I've been saying throughout this entire thing, that you do have to have obedience that leads to that right relationship with God at the very end. There is definitely a... Um, power in Jesus's death on the cross that sets us back in right standing with Jesus. And I never want to um, shy away from the fact that that power does exist. But obedience is another part of the story that people don't talk about, at least in evangelical Protestant uh, circles, because they're really afraid of sounding Catholic. Um, and as a result of them of uh, afraid of being and sounding like a Catholic, they really downplay verses like this in which it literally says obedience leads to right relationship with God. Um, so just keep that in mind. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. So he is saying to these uh, Romans, uh, even after like kind of uh, making his case of why you shouldn't be doing this, he does at the very end give them some encouragement and say, I've heard some really good things about y'all. Like, you know, like for the most part, y'all are doing good. There's still the Romans 2 problem. 
Um, and he brings that up just as like a case in point of like, if you personally um, are uh, accusing people of doing things that you are doing yourself, this is a, this is a problem here. Um, but for the most part, he's uh, heard that um, they have come to obey the heart of the pattern of this teaching and um, they're now claiming the way of Jesus um, and they are actually like in allegiance to Jesus like they are calling him master and lord and they're willing to let him dictate their life you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness so this idea here is you've jumped from the slavery of sin to the slavery of righteousness um, which may sound a little weird to us today because slavery is such a hot topic and something that's very um, problematic um, for him remember that this culture slavery is a very different thing than american slavery and uh, slavery, in many cases, was just being a servant. Um, as a matter of fact, the word servant in Greek can also be translated slave. It's an either-or here. So servant and slave, they both have the same uh, meaning here. And so you could just as well translate this servants to righteousness as you could translate it slaves. Uh, I think they go with slave here just to kind of really make the point solid, but just keep that in mind. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Again, make I really want to make that clear. You are not holy just because of justification. You have to become a slave to righteousness that then leads to holiness. Um, this is something that I really, really want to harp on. And remember, God requires us to be holy, right? You're put in right relationship with God, but you then have to work that out through fear and trembling, is what he'll say in some other works, other passages. So keep that in mind. It's a both and kind of thing here. And um, I, yeah, it's it it's part of par for the course. Um, I like Lewis as an analogy here of this, where um, being a slave to righteousness and being justified by God are two blades of the scissors. And without, if you take away one, um, then the other uh, doesn't work. And so you have to have both as two blades of the scissors to make it work. Um, you have to have us being put back in right relationship with God first by Jesus's death. And then you also have to have us being slaves to righteousness, which means continually dying to ourselves and living out the life of the Spirit, um, which he'll get to in chapter 8, that leads us into this holiness. Um, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, right? Pretty obvious. Um, when you're on the path of sin, yeah, like you're not dying to self. And this is kind of the metaphor of like, you know, you can kind of go with the flow, you know, go with what everybody else is doing. Um, you're not really going against the tide, so to speak. You're not going against the grain. Um, you are, um, you know, free from that control. You're free from that kind of um, individualism, I guess I would even say, of being kind of an oddball, um, being someone that is controlled by something outside side of like um, the power of sin, which is controlling so much of the world around them in their culture and in their time period, right? Um, instead, they're free uh, from that kind of control of being an oddball, but in 
in many respects, they're also a slave to the pattern that everybody else is living. And they're in many ways, this is something that as an Enneagram four, I really latch hold of is like his point here basically is like, yeah, you're free from doing righteousness, but you also are like a slave just like everybody else is. And a four always wants to be like kind of the oddball, kind of wants to be the unique one, kind of want to go against the grain. And so this is one of my favorite kind of ideas is that he's saying like, uh, like you can like choose between the, the path that is wide or you can choose the narrow path is really what Jesus will kind of lay this out as. And uh, you always want to choose the narrow. Um, as an Enneagram 4, that has been my life versus choose the narrow path. <laughs> uh, maybe too much, but yeah, like that that's really what I, I find is um, uh, very integral to what he's getting at here. In verse 21, he says, what a benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? So He's recalling when they were just full on in that path, when they weren't believing in Jesus at all. Did they actually get anything of good from living that kind of things, from living that kind of life? And he then points back to where that path ends in, and it ends in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So very simple. Yeah, you may be going against the grain, and now you may be a slave of righteousness, but the result is eternal life. Like, you're going to live forever and ever and ever. Like, immortality, right? The result if you go down the way of sin is that you die, right? And you don't have eternal life. And they, and also, on top of that, you're not holy. Um, holiness is a thing that, like, again, I talk about, um, even if you talk to a non-Christian, if you'd ask them, would you like me to be loving, peaceful, kind, patient, um, gentle, self-controlled around you? No non-Christian in their right mind would say, no, I don't want you to be those things. Um, and this is exactly what holiness is, right? They want, like, we all integrally are actually working towards holiness. Um, and I think it's an important part of, like, the whole story is that, like, you can either go down the path that leads away from that kind of living, that kind of gentleness and kindness and self-control, or you can go towards that. And that's his point here, which both have an end point. One is eternal life and one is death. And he reiterates that in verse 23 by saying, the wages of sin is death, um, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um yeah, and that really sums up this entire chapter, what he's getting at. I hope this chapter brought you a lot of peace, um, maybe even some conviction at times, um, just with what he's getting at and what he's trying to communicate here. Um, and I hope it was clear and understandable for you. We will be back in your feed again next week um, to talk about Romans chapter 7, which is a, one of the second most debated passages in the book of Romans. We Romans 5 was the biggest, and Romans 7 was will definitely be the second biggest. I think we can get through that one pretty quickly, though. Um, it's not as confrontational in some ways as um, Romans 5 can be. Um, so we'll hopefully get through it quickly. And um, I'm excited to continue on through these chapters with y'all, um, bringing you uh, the hope of Jesus and the peace that can come from boasting in our sufferings and boasting in dying to self over um, living to sin. Thank you guys so much for everything that you do in keeping this podcast going. You can always, I always put a link at the end of the show notes to uh, give you the option to donate to our ministry and help us continue to make episodes like this one. Um, feel free to um, 
leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. That really helps um, this podcast get out to more people. And I would also ask that you continue to pray for me as I work through these chapters and continue to teach and do the best I can to be able to teach correctly and not erroneously. Thank you guys so much again. Bye.